0: Hello, friends. This is Mark Heffley, and welcome to this second episode of our Lenten study of the Psalms. We've entered now into our first full week of Lent, and there's still plenty of fasting and penance on the horizon. So, hopefully, you're getting settled in your Lenten practices and are ready to dive back into the Word. This week, we once again have a great Psalm, Psalm 33. Last week, our psalm, Psalm 51, was centered around the psalmist's prayer for forgiveness and a new heart. Psalm 33 takes up a somewhat different theme, and that's praising the Lord in community. This theme comes across clearly when we look at the first three verses and the last three verses, because these verses serve as uh, bookends to the whole poem. The psalm begins, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, praise befits the upright and it continues with instructions to the community to give thanks, make melody, and to sing a new song. In a similar way, it ends with the community expressing its hope in the Lord. This communal focus is a little different from our psalm last week. Psalm 51 spoke from the first person singular, have mercy on me, O God, whereas Psalm 33 is placed on the lips of the whole community, especially the last verses. Yet, we did see last week that Psalm 51 is not merely concerned with the individual. The psalmist prays not only for himself, but also for Jerusalem, and he longs to rejoin the worshiping community. In the church's liturgy, Psalm 33 serves as something of a sequel to Psalm 51. We prayed in Psalm 51 for mercy to be able to praise God with the community. Now, we're doing exactly that. It's important to linger on this a little more. Oftentimes we can fall into the trap of thinking the Christian life is simply about me and God. Yes, yes, yes. We are to have a personal relationship with God. But this relationship is only possible with and through the community. And the fruit of our personal relationship is supposed to spill out or spill over for the benefit of the whole community. We'll come back to this in a little bit. Uh, when we reflect on another theme in the psalm, which is the calling of God's people. But now let's begin at the top. The first thing you might notice is that this psalm, unlike Psalm 51 last week, this psalm does not have a superscript. This could be because our psalm is supposed to be read as a continuation of Psalm 32. Much like Psalm 51, Psalm 32 is a prayer for forgiveness, which then leads up to and ends with praising God as it says, shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 33 doesn't miss a beat, and it begins with almost the exact same command. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. So this is the context in which the psalm is best read. Praising God for his merciful love, which washes away our sins. In your own life, you can take up these psalms when you go to confession. You can pray Psalm 32 or 51 as you prepare. And as a prayer of thanksgiving afterwards, you can offer up Psalm 33. Okay, so our psalm begins with a call to praise. Who should praise? According to the first verse, the upright and the righteous. Righteousness in scripture denotes being in right relationship with God. And of course, being in right relationship with God requires and makes possible being in right relationship with our neighbor. You can take a look at Psalms 15 and 24 as examples of this. But here's the really important point, especially if you're thinking righteousness and uprightness don't quite describe you. How can one be righteous and upright? Not by his or her own efforts. This is clear not only in scripture, but in our own lives. We try and do good and avoid evil, but more often than we like, we end up doing the evil and avoiding the good. So how can one be righteous and upright? By depending wholeheartedly on God's merciful love, his hesed. It is only by God's grace that we can be washed of our sins and strengthened to live rightly. So by beginning with a call to the righteous and upright, our psalm is not narrowing its audience to the morally perfect or the, you know, the holier than thou's. No, our psalm is inviting all of us simply to turn to God in repentance as in Psalm 32 or Psalm 51 and embrace his merciful love. And doing this will lead us to praise. Okay, so that covers the who, but the psalm then tells us how we should praise. First, we praise as a community. The imperatives here at the beginning are all in the plural. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre, y'all. This leads into the second of the hows, which is to do it with joy, singing, and music. Now, as Midwestern Americans, we're, generally speaking, not the, hey, let's get together and sing kind of people. We might sing happy birthday or do karaoke, but we don't usually sing at family get-togethers or other gatherings as is more customary in other cultures. Speaking personally, I would prefer the church to do away with all singing, but my thinking here is clearly not in sync with the directive here and throughout scripture. Singing is a beautiful and essential form of worship. What are we to sing? A new song. Now here the psalmist is not just bemoaning the dated songs of his day nor can we use it as support for us ditching all the worship songs from the 70s. When he says a new song, he's referring to a song of thanksgiving for the forgiveness granted in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. All right, so that's the first stanza, a call for the upright to praise God's merciful love together as a community. We got the who and the how of praise, and through the rest of the poem, we get the why. We're given three whys in the next three stanzas the trustworthiness of God's creation, the trustworthiness of God's plans, and the trustworthiness of God's providence. These three, of course, are closely related and they overlap some with each other. So turning now to the second stanza, verses four through seven, here the psalmist praises God for his work of creation. The word of the Lord, by which the heavens were made, is upright and all his works are trustworthy. Incidentally, this is the only psalm which speaks of God creating by his word, and it reminds us of John 1, which says, In the beginning was the word, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So it's only natural that the church uses this psalm to celebrate the feast of the Holy Trinity. We also see a beautiful connection here with the gospel for this Sunday. Jesus is transfigured before his disciples on top of the mountain, and the Trinity is manifested in Jesus and in the signs of the voice, the Father, and the cloud, the Spirit. God through his word creates, and his creation is trustworthy because it's permeated with God's steadfast love. Or as the Psalm says, of the kindness of the Lord, the earth is full. God even, as it says, gathers the waters of the sea and puts the deeps in storehouses. Now this is really cool because the sea and the deep are images used throughout scripture for the destructive and chaotic forces of creation. The psalmist is declaring that there is absolutely nothing that lies outside of God's powerful hand, not even death and the various threats to humanity. Since God is faithful in creation, even exercising control over death, it only makes sense that we should conform ourselves to his plans. And this is the theme of the next stanza, verses 8 through 11. Now notice something interesting here in verse 10. The council and the plans of the nations are spoken of in a similar way to the forces of destruction and chaos above in verse 7. Now it's unfortunately all too true that people and political bodies often resort to dishonesty, violence, and other dehumanizing behaviors in trying to get what they want. But this is the good news that we see here in the psalm. Just as God gathers the waters and puts the deeps in storehouses, so too does he bring the counsel of the nations to nothing and frustrate the plans of the peoples. Even the worst of what man is capable of is not the final word, nor is it ever given the upper hand. Instead, it is God's plans which stand forever, and his plans are plans of steadfast love. Building off of this theme, the next danza, verses 12 through 15, unpacks the third why for praising God, the trustworthiness of God's providence. It begins by pointing out how awesome it is for Israel to have been chosen by God to be the people of his heritage. The emphasis here is on the fact that God chose them. And what did he choose them for? To be his heritage, or another way to say it is to have a part in the Lord, to belong to him, and to receive good things from him. The same theme of God choosing a people is on full display in our first reading from Genesis 12. Here God calls Abram, who later gets his name changed to Abraham, calls him from his hometown, and he promises him... I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, this is super important. Here, God causes people Israel, who are the future descendants of Abram, and he sets them apart. This is what our psalm is talking about. But why does God do this? So that God can bless all the nations through Abram's family. Remember when this takes place. So far in Genesis, we've heard about Adam and Eve falling and being expelled from the garden, people killing each other and becoming so bad that God floods the place, Noah being chosen, but even he falls. Now through it all, it looks like humanity is simply doomed. What is God going to do? And God's answer to all of this, to all that's wrong with man's heart, is to call a people to himself. God will then dwell with his people and bring his blessings to all the nations through this people. Ultimately, this will take place through Abram's descendant, Jesus. And this is precisely what our second reading from the second letter to Timothy is talking about. God's plan from the beginning was to call a people to himself in Christ Jesus so that the grace of Christ who destroyed death and brought life and immortality might be brought to all peoples. The church is the people of God called, separated from the world, but the church exists precisely to bring God's blessings to all those suffering from sin and death. And the Lord sees all of this suffering and death. This is emphasized in verses 13 through 15, where it says that God looks down from heaven, he sees all, he looks out on all, and observes all. The fourfold repetition here denotes completeness. The idea is that God is in complete control. And in praying the psalm, we're making a rather profound profession of faith. You see in other psalms, such as Psalm 94, verse 7, the wicked say that God doesn't see, that he's not in control. In praying verses 13 through 15, here, we are professing the opposite. We're professing our faith in God's providence, and we're doing so with gusto. We're saying God completely sees. But allowing this faith to shape our lives is rather difficult at times our psalm continues to list various things that people tend to put trust in like a great army or horses etc now these examples given in the psalm they ultimately boil down to putting trust in one's own strength and resources our trust falters when we start looking at our problems as humans do as problems to be solved by us according to our plans our strength and our resources instead god calls us in verses 18 through 19 to look at our problems from God's perspective and put our trust in his plans, his strength, and his resources. And this carries over beautifully into our gospel this Sunday. The transfiguration took place shortly before Jesus's passion, and his disciples have continuously failed to grasp Jesus's words about his coming death and resurrection. They continue to look at everything from a human perspective. They don't want Jesus to suffer, let alone die. They want want Jesus seated in glory between Moses and Elijah uh, with themselves seated comfortably nearby. And so what is the father's word to them? He says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He calls the disciples, this is really hard, to set aside their own faulty understanding and instead embrace Christ's way in trust, even though this way will lead to the cross. But counterintuitively, it's through this way that we preserve our lives. Or as our psalm says, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death. Our psalm then closes as it began with a community together praising God, offering a prayer of hope in God's faithfulness. Our psalmist understands that hoping in God's steadfast love is quite difficult at times. We have to reaffirm and consciously cultivate that hope. And we do this together as we pray the response, Lord, let your mercy be on us as we place our trust in you.